about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I hope you're starting to connect some dots as well, thinking about well, how, how is God working in every room of my life? Is he actually in each room? And when you, when you look at each room and you start asking that question of, well, how is the Holy Spirit in this room driving me to a bigger vision of who Jesus is? Because that's his great work in mediating Christ to my heart. Then how is what I'm facing pressing on me a need for a greater vision of him? How, what does Christ-likeness look like in that situation? And that's, that's the question I want to I turn to now specifically. Well, what, does a, what does a transformed life really look like? You know, what does it actually mean to be Christ-like? What does it actually mean when we vaguely say stuff like that? that as I'm, you can probably accuse me of saying already. I like, sometimes I think we just mean something that happens on the inside. Jesus, you know, the Holy Spirit's carving out this beautiful kind of six-pack spirituality inside me, right? Uh, and it's beautiful, and there's fruits of the Spirit, and there's this beautiful inner self that Jesus is carving. And when we say I'm becoming like Jesus, we mean this beautiful inner self. That's sometimes what we mean. A lot of people, when they think about being transformed, they think about the before and after. And, you know, people, when they think about before and after, Tom Cruise, who knew? Um, you know, the after is always better, right? The after is always better, visibly, outwardly better. You know, when you're doing a house and, uh, you know, this, you know, crummy to spectacular. And so uh, we expect that if the Holy Spirit is so powerfully at work in my life, then perhaps it will look a little awesome. Perhaps it will be a little bit spectacular. What we don't expect is that if the Holy Spirit is in our life, (laughs) then it shouldn't go from this to that. Uh, It shouldn't go into chaos. I've also noticed something in some Christian books I've been reading, uh, particularly around sexuality, it keeps popping up. But this idea that when you are talking about the Christian life and you come up with an idea and it requires someone to give up a lot to follow Jesus, 
then that's wrong. If your way of following Jesus does you significant harm, then that's not true Christianity. I've seen that a few times in a few Christian books I've read recently. And I found that a bit disturbing, just tracing all this together, because for me that uh, rules out some of the most spectacular Christians and brothers and sisters I know, particularly those brothers and sisters who've given their life for their faith, are not Christian martyrs, those who have ultimately been transformed. And yet has not Jesus asked of them everything? Has not their life gone from together to being pulled apart? And for them, being Christ-like is not some beautiful inner six-pack spirituality. It's to do with a concrete circumstance where they were forced into a situation whether it was death and life, faith or unfaith. I think we have a bit more work to do when we're thinking about what does a transformed life look like? Because I think, actually, in the end, it looks a lot messier, a lot more complicated, and a lot more painful than we expect, if I'm going to be honest. Let's have a a look at how Paul unpacks this, because we've been talking about 2 Corinthians and how how Paul is um, uh, defending his ministry. Uh, He's got some very significant challenges to his ministry in Corinth and some other leaders who are very much not about the gospel. And the first half of his argument is about how the Spirit is powerfully at work in his ministry, But in the second half of his argument, he's got to to defend why his life is such a train wreck, why he's always on the run, why he's always getting beaten up, why he's always getting rejected and thrown out of cities. And so verse 7 to 15, kind of, he starts to head into that part of his defense. And the first thing we learn, I think, here is that transformation, really, it looks messy and it looks contradictory. So Paul in in verse 7 of chapter 4 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Notice some things straight away here. Notice what he calls seeing Jesus in his heart. What does he call it? Treasure. What the Holy Spirit is doing in his life, in giving him the glory of Christ, beholding that with an unveiled face, treasure. In those moments in your life where the Spirit is pricking you with a vision of who Jesus is, do you consider it treasure? The second way he describes it is all-surpassing power. How's that for a phrase? All-surpassing power. He's talking about the Holy Spirit at work in him and in his ministry. That this work of unveiling people and setting them free and making them like Jesus, seeing and coming into contact, relationship with the living God, as Tim was talking about, this, this really living with him, that is the power of the Christian life. Walking in the power of the Spirit, holding Jesus Christ. He talks about having this this treasure and this all-surpassing power and the Holy Spirit deeply involved in his life. But he says, I have it all in a jar of clay. An ordinary, fragile, 
unbreakable piece of pottery. No named home brand Paul in real skin, real flesh. And this is the reality we all face as Christians that in the gospel, this incredible thing happens in our life. We come back into contact through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through our sins paid for, back into contact with God. And yet, we have this extraordinary thing, and yet we go to work every week. And we stub our toes. And our legs break. Like, I have a weird, like, lump below my knee at the moment. The Holy Spirit isn't doing much about that. It's very strange, don't you think, that God is doing this amazing work of transformation, and yet we all look so ordinary. Paul's saying that basically the the contrast is really important. The difference between being a jar of clay and having the surpassing power inside you shows that the power is from God, verse 7, and not from us. So the fact he looks so pathetic as an apostle does the gospel good because it demonstrates that it's not Paul's mission, but it's the mission of the triune God. That's the mission of the living God in and through him. The patheticness of his appearance is an important part of his mission. His transformation and him bringing about transformation looks contradictory for a really good reason. What he then goes on to explain, and I love how he does this, and he does this multiple times in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about these contradictory contrasts in his life. And he kind of dynamically unpacks what it looks like to live with surpassing power inside you, but live in a fragile jar of clay. He talks about feeling hard-pressed on every side. Literally, the word means to feel constricted to feel like a python is pressing in on you, to feel less than able to breathe. That's what transformation feels like for Paul. How about you? He talks about feeling perplexed, about feeling so bewildered about what's actually happening in life and in his life. He talks about being persecuted, about being hunted down by people and then physically being struck down by them. This is what transformation looks like for Paul. Yet on the other hand, even though he gets constricted, he never feels like there's no way out. And even when he's completely confused, he never is fully despairing. And even when he's being hunted, God doesn't leave him. And even when he's being struck down, he won't finally fall under the judgment of God and be destroyed. Paul lives in this contradiction, this outward, weak, pathetic experience of life full of ordinary pressure and pain and difficulty and psychological kind of confusion. And yet underneath it, inside him, is this experience of God that somehow lifts him up and holds him up in the midst of it. That's what transformation looks like. You in the ordinary mess of your life, not in this holy kind of collared shirt, you know, nice clothes, makeup face part of your life, but the real mess, 
and yet being held up on the inside. In chapter 6, he does it again. Can I just take you there? Because I love the list he does there. Uh, He does it uh, in verse 8. He talks about through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. The beautiful contradiction of the Christian life, the beautiful mess of the Christian life, that we are called to live in our clay jar, and yet even as we encounter the ordinary things of life, we encounter the extraordinary things of God. So how do we make sense of this contradiction? Well, there's kind of two halves to it, and let me unpack them kind of side by side. On the one hand, on the outside, on our clay, in our clay jar... The Spirit, this is my second point on the outline, is enabling us to look like our crucified Christ. The Holy Spirit is enabling us to look like our crucified Christ. You see, that's what Paul, that's how Paul explains his experience in verses 7 to 9. He says, we always, verse 10, carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Then in verse 11, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 12, so then death is at work in us. When Paul looks at the circumstances of his life, what does it look like? What does it actually physically look like? It looks like the death of Jesus. He says, in the midst of these things, I am carrying the death of Jesus in my body. He says, in the midst of these things, he talks about being handed over to death for Jesus' sake. It's the same word used in the Gospels for when Jesus is handed over to be crucified crossing over the language, and he's saying, listen, in my life, the Holy Spirit is leading me into situations where I, I die like Jesus died. Be assured of one thing, friends. The Holy Spirit will lead you into trouble. And the Holy Spirit will lead you into situations, real, particular, physical situations where you will look like Christ crucified. When we say we, we, are, we will look like him, transformed into his likeness, in this world that means physically looking like him. And notice the effect that Paul describes. He, he, he kind of understands that this dying that happens in his body leads to life in other people's bodies. So he says, so, in verse 10, so the life of Jesus may be revealed in us, And so that the life may be revealed in our mortal body, verse 11. And then verse 12, life is at work in you. He suffers death to give others life. His life looks like Jesus. Now, Paul is an apostle, right, at this point, we need to realize. He has a very specific calling. And when Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road and in the events that follow, he is being told very concretely that his life, His life in particular will involve a lot of suffering. 
God kind of marks him with that from the beginning. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. They're the words that Jesus says in the book of Acts. But once again, when you, when you start looking through the book of 2 Corinthians and you look at the way that Paul talks to them about the life that they have to live, when you start to noodle around in those things, you start to realize that they too have been pressed into situations where they need to look like Jesus. So in, it's on your outline. In, 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 verse, uh, in chapter 1, the first one, he talks about the patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So his expectation is not just that he will suffer on behalf of Jesus, but that the, the Corinthians will as well. And that Paul's suffering will be an example to them so they can suffer faithfully and endure as well. Their faithful suffering is them looking like Jesus. Them choosing to trust God in the midst of it is them looking like Jesus. And same in chapter 2, where Paul comes back to a situation where there's been a great big sin that's happened uh, in the Corinthian church. We're not sure what he means. He might be talking to, some, to chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians. We don't know. It'd be interesting if he was, but it's not very clear. Uh, but he says about this individual, doesn't name the situation, doesn't name the person, but he says, now, I know they've caused you lots of pain, but now you ought to forgive and comfort them. The situation they find themselves in as a church family is collectively they need to enact Christ-likeness by forgiving. As, in, as also in chapter 5, Jesus uh, takes away our sins and doesn't count our sins against us. In uh, chapter 6, he talks about how we're sons and daughters and the need then at that point to purify ourselves from everything that contaminates from body and spirit. Like Jesus, who lived out God's holiness, so in their pagan setting, their Christ-likeness is to be marked out by looking purified and looking different, by a form of self-denial, of separating themselves, separating parts of their life and putting them away, living as holy children as Jesus did. And in chapter 8, as we mentioned earlier, they've been pulled into this international aid situation. And that means someone to give away their wealth, to give away the stuff they have so that others will have life and food. Can you see how in a bunch of quite ordinary situations, Paul is pointing out how God has led them into situations and really they're being pressed into Christ-likeness physically in their situations. Just as his life is pressed, the cross is pressed on it, so the cross is pressed on their lives. Think about this for a second. Think about the rooms of your life. There are parts of your life, and you might not notice this yet, there are parts of your life where you might even be imaging Jesus without knowing. where the circumstances you've been pressed into, through the power of the Spirit at work in you, you actually, not just 
inside you, but you look like Jesus on the outside, doing your own forgiving, doing your own self-denying, choosing to lose things for the sake of Jesus, forgiving very difficult situations. Friends, I feel like you need to be encouraged by this, that the Holy Spirit's actually already led you there in a few situations. And perhaps they're the most complicated and difficult situations in your life. Maybe they exist for the sake of you looking like Christ in a suffering, costly way. I want to come back to that. I'll unpack it a bit further, but just leave that there for a moment, because that's the one half, the outside, the, the, the clay jar, right? The, the first half of the contradiction. The other half of the contradiction is this capacity, this power in Paul that means that even when, even when these things are pressing on him, they're not destroying him, they're not crushing him, they're not breaking him. Somehow the surpassing power and treasure inside him allows him to endure. And that's complicated, isn't it? Working out how to forgive someone, working out how to give up stuff, working out how to be holy. But Paul says something really profound in the next bit. And it's one of those moments in 2 Corinthians again where the triune God kind of grows up out of the text. He's just kind of there, really clearly. And really what Paul is experiencing is that the Holy Spirit helps him trust his Father's goodness. In the midst of the things pressing on him, the Holy Spirit helps him trust his Father's goodness. So in verse 13, he says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Now, jump back to that. Let's go to that reference, Psalm 116. Just jump over in your Bible, Psalm 116. Let me take you there for a second. This is one of Cass and I's favorite psalms, which is cool. Um, now, the context of this psalm is really interesting. And it speaks directly into what Paul's already talking about. Because this psalm is about being in deathly circumstances but trusting the goodness of God to deliver you, right? So verse 3 talks about how the cords of death entangled him and the anguish of the grave came upon him and the trouble and sorrow, so real mess pressing in, deathly mess, and he calls out to God and God saves him. Verse 7, be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And here it is. I believe, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. You see a psalmist in uh, the similar situation to Paul, in the midst of a really deathly, fragile, complicated life. And yet in the midst of that life, he's confident in the goodness of God to deliver him from death and to be with him in the midst of trouble. That's what Psalm 116 is talking about. And so if we jump over to to, to Corinthians again, Paul says, with that same spirit, we also believe. Now, that word spirit, I think, should be in capitals. It should be capital S, spirit. 
little less spirit makes no sense in context. Uh, it's the same Greek word as all the other spirits in the rest of the chapter. It's not like Paul is saying, oh, me, me and him, we have the same feels, right? We're kind of like, we get each other. No, he's saying the same spirit that was at work in the psalmist in the old covenant has, is at work in me, pressing on me the goodness of God despite what I see happening, despite all the mess happening around me. And so he's in verse 13, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. See, once again, Trinitarian moment. Who's the one who raises Jesus from the dead? It's God the Father. God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. And Paul says we are confident that the that our Father who raised Jesus from the dead can also raise us from the dead, even if we're killed in the combat for the sake of the gospel. And so in the midst of life, we rest in God's goodness even when everything is going south. And it is the Holy Spirit in us, testifying in our hearts again, this time not about Jesus, but about our Father saying, your Father is good. Look, he raised Jesus. He can raise you. Sit and trust and rest that he is good despite what is happening. You see, the more and more and more I think about it, the more I think the Bible really talks about, when it talks about the power of God in the midst of a suffering life, the power it's talking about is the power we get through relationship. So you know how in the most difficult times in your life and someone comes alongside you and speaks a tender word and just stays with you and, and they just spend time with you and they make you a meal and you feel lifted from it and then you keep going? Did they not empower you? Did not they, by their presence and their actions and their goodness, give you strength? I think that's the kind of power the Bible talks about. The power we get from knowing a good father, from seeing the glorious Christ. The power we get is the power of knowing the triune God. And so the two halves are that there's contradiction of this life pressing in on us. It's like the Holy Spirit is pressing the cross on us, and yet at the same time is holding us up with the Father's goodness. And so we get to live in this complex, contradictory, messy place where we really look like Jesus but trust our Father's goodness. Let me tell you a story about how this worked in my life a little bit. Um... Lucy was born five months ago, which is amazing uh, to me and Kath. Uh, but we have been married for almost 11 years now, and for most of those years, we've been longing for a kid. And for us, the journey to having a child has been really long. It's involved the miscarriage. It's involved a lot of really seeing, we have a roller deck of like all kinds of people that we've seen and known. Uh, we've been through so many disappointments. We've been through so many false hopes. And it got to the point, really, for me, when, when you've been pressed under by so many disappointments that 
you really just don't expect it to ever get better. You know, there's points where you really do feel bewildered and perplexed and crushed on every side. But what I found happening in the midst of this was something I didn't expect. A lot of people came to me and said, oh, I think God will, God will end this for you. And I found that remarkably unhelpful. Because no one could promise that to me. And on the other hand, what God was revealing in the midst of it was not that he was good because he would overturn my circumstances. But he was just good. And it's a funny thing that happened in the middle because I kind of learned about a type of hope I'd never known before. It was a hope in the fact that my father would look after me no matter what happened. And that in the hands of his goodness, he would uphold me even if things never got better. And so I found myself in a situation in life where the Holy Spirit had led me into a situation which was out of my control, And like Jesus, I was called to just faithfully suffer. And the power for bearing up under that was the Spirit telling me through Scripture, like Paul here, about the goodness of my Father. You see, that's how God is at work transforming us. Pressing us into real situations where we actually look like Jesus. And then giving us the power to trust our Father's goodness in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's real transformation. Did not Jesus, when he summoned his disciples to follow him, say, Come after me, deny yourself, and take up your cross and follow? It's the situations in life when you find yourself denying yourself and taking up your cross are the places you're actually really experiencing transformation. So let me come back, and this is point four, and I'll noodle around here for a little bit, and then I'll get you to do an exercise. But friends, can I, can I suggest humbly that there are circumstances in your life, in the rooms of your life, where the cross is being pressed on you, where you're being called to deny yourself, Maybe there's something in a room of your life that you desperately long for and you could get, but you choose not to because you want to follow Jesus. Be it a house or a spouse or a job or a thought or an event or a thing. In that situation where you choose to rest in your Father's goodness, are you not denying yourself and following? Friend, in that moment, you are looking like Jesus. Are you finding yourself up to your neck in suffering and affliction? With circumstances you can't control and don't look like they'll end. Like Jesus, the supreme sufferer, may it not be that you are called to trust him despite what's happening and to bear up under it. And actually, you look a lot like him. A faithful sufferer, looking like Jesus.
Maybe in the midst of your job, things are just so stressful and you're being pressed on every side. And just there's so much happening. And you have to bear cost to do your job well. Might you be looking like Jesus? Or maybe there's relationships in your family where staying connected requires patience and endurance and forgiveness, and you counting the cost of wrongs done to you that will not be owned up to, and the hard work of showing up and texting again or calling again makes you just, well, look like Jesus. Or maybe there's something in this world right now, some situation in some country some people group who don't know the gospel, some situation of injustice that the Holy Spirit is just slamming on your heart and you're willing to give up something to make it better. Sounds a little like Jesus. Can, can you see how the Holy Spirit is already at work in the rooms of your life? He's there before you, leading you into trouble in situations where you physically look like Jesus. And what is he really longing and helping and pressing on you to do? To rest in the goodness of your Father. In the Father who will raise you from the dead, like he raised Jesus from the dead, and will present you before him in his presence. You see, we talked about in the last session about how in this present life, we behold as in a mirror, But that's only while we wait for our resurrection. Because then our Father will pull us into the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit will complete His work and give us a new body and a whole transformed self. And it's in light of His future, this future hope, that we can rest presently in our Father's goodness. And so, friends, just to to think about this a little more, Uh, I've got got another table. I know I have another table. Should have just made one table with the same things? Anyway, I don't know. Uh, I want you to look over the rooms of your life with a slightly different lens this time. Um, There's four four different categories. Where's the room in your life where there's suffering? Where's the room in your life where you need to give up something to follow? Where's the room in your life where you can give life to someone? And where's the room in your life where you need to enact sacrificial love in a relationship? And just, just, just think about one of them. Just pick one. Uh, pick one of those situations. It's just I'm thinking, well, what is the, where's the Holy Spirit leading me in this situation to look like Jesus? How is it already happening maybe without me knowing? I think you'll find in some of the, 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 the pressure points of your room, you'll find this true already. And then start to think, well, like what did Paul do? He looked to a psalm that spoke of his father's goodness. And maybe there's some scripture that speaks of your father's goodness that you can speak into that situation. And then maybe the same question as we asked last time, well, how does Jesus already enact what you are looking like here or what you need to look like here? Because remember, the power for transformation is not in you. I'm not telling you to just go and be like Jesus. I'm telling you 
Like God has given you a life, and there are situations where you are already looking like him, and you need to look to his power to continue to walk in your discipleship. The power is not in you to be like Jesus. What you need is not more of you. You need more of him. He who was the supreme sufferer, who was actually crushed on the cross, who was confused and bewildered in Gethsemane, but trusted his father's goodness anyway, who was hunted and who was destroyed and judged so that you could be raised into the presence of your father. Friends, by looking onto him, by seeing him, you'll begin to image him in what's happening. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.